Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. Are you concerned about the health of your brain? Do you want to get rid of brain fog and have superior clarity and focus? Well, I have a solution for you. And no, it's not caffeine or some sort of pill or powder. Rather, it's delicious chocolate fudge. I know that sounds crazy, but this isn't your average fudge. It's actually rich, chocolatey fudge that is jam-packed with five of the most beneficial mushroom species in existence when it comes to keeping a sharp and healthy brain. In fact, all of the mushrooms contain high amounts of essential nutrients, along with unique bioactive compounds that can promote the health of your brain while also supporting your heart and immune system. Rest assured, you cannot taste the mushrooms within this fudge whatsoever. Just a delicious, gooey, chocolatey taste without sugar or artificial sweeteners. I'm introducing you to my favorite brain health treat. It's called Mushroom Mind Boost from my friends over at Purality Health. Now, Purality Health utilizes something called MyCell liposomal technology, which delivers the nutrients of these brain-boosting mushrooms into your bloodstream, proven to be up to 800% more efficient. So if you want to say goodbye to forgetfulness and instead keep a sharp and healthy mind, give Purality Health's Mushroom Mind Boost a try. It's backed by a 180-day money-back guarantee. That's six full months and today, I have a 30% off coupon for you. Just visit PurityHealth.com and use the coupon DRJ to access 30% off your purchase today. On this podcast, I'm being interviewed by my friend, Dr. John Dempster, for his Gut Reset Summit. And we talk all about how intermittent fasting helps your body heal leaky gut and improves the diversity and the resilience of the microbiome. And on this podcast, I share my story of when I was in my early 20s, how I had irritable bowel syndrome and how intermittent fasting was a cornerstone strategy I used to help overcome this naturally. And I go through the science of how intermittent fasting helps to heal the gut lining as well as improve the diversity and the resilience and overall strength of the microbiome. It's a really powerful topic. And if you know anybody that wants to improve their gut health or is just really interested in this topic, please share this podcast with them. And also, you will want to go ahead and register for the upcoming Gut Reset Summit. For a limited time, it is a free viewing, and you can check it out. Just go to the go to drjockers.com and go to the show notes for this podcast, and you'll find a link so you can access that summit for free and listen to all the top experts when it comes to gut health, and the microbiome. So I know you guys will get a lot of value out of that. And thank you so much for being a part of our community here on the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast. Please subscribe to the channel if you haven't already and leave us a five-star review. When you leave us a review, it helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for being a part of our community. And let's go into the show. 
Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Gut Reset Summit. I'm your host, Dr. John Dempster, and today I'm thrilled to introduce to you an old friend of mine, Dr. David Jockers. And Dr. David Jockers, he is a doctor of natural medicine who runs one of the most popular natural health websites, drjockers.com. And this site has over 1 million monthly visitors, which is insane. So that's amazing, amazing the work he's doing with that. And his work is also featured on popular media such as The Dr. Oz Show and Hallmark's Home and Family. And Dr. Jockers is the author of the best-selling book, The Keto Metabolic Breakthrough and The Fasting Transformation. And he is also the host of the popular Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast. And David lives in Canton, uh, Georgia with his wife, Angel, and his twin boys, David and Joshua, and his daughters, Joyful and Shine. But David, great to have you on here. Thanks so much for being here today. Well, thanks so much, Sean. Always great to connect with you. Yeah, fantastic. And today we're going to talk about one of your topics that's near and dear to your heart, and that's going to be all about intermittent fasting. But we're going to tie it into how this is so critically important for the gut microbiome, for diversity, and for gut health overall. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm super excited about this. Intermittent fasting was a key strategy I used to heal irritable bowel syndrome. And it wasn't something I had learned about. Like I I didn't know anybody that was actually practicing it. The term hadn't hit culture yet. In fact, you know, I didn't know anybody, any health influencer that was talking about it back in 2004, 2005. I just did it intuitively. And I was dealing with constipation, diarrhea, trouble, you know, trouble gaining weight, you know, nutrient absorption issues. And I just felt better when I compressed my eating window, like we're going to talk about. And it was a really key strategy that allowed me to heal my gut, improve my nutrient absorption, gain the the muscle weight back, get my energy back and my life back. So uh, something I'm really passionate about. So for everyone who's listening right now, I mean, this might not be a new term given that it's been popularized lately, but let's break it down. What is intermittent fasting? Can you just break down that definition? Yep. So all of us do some level of intermittent fasting because we all sleep at night. So when we're sleeping, we're not eating. And really, I think about intermittent fasting as more or less the time between. So I I break it into two, two different periods. We have the time between our first meal of the day and the last meal of the day. And then we have the time, in a sense, in between that, right? So with intermittent fasting, we're compressing our eating window. So most people are eating in, let's say, a 14 or 16-hour eating window. So let's say they eat their first bite of food at 7 a.m. and they have their last bit of calories at 9 p.m., let's say. You know, that's kind of a 14-hour eating window, 10-hour fasting window. So most people are doing something along those lines. Intermittent fasting would have us do something like one of the more popular methods is an eight-hour eating window where we're eating our meals in an eight-hour window, let's say 12 p.m. to 8 p.m., 10 a.m. to 6, 8 a.m. to 4, you know, whatever works best for your schedule and what you feel best with. But basically, you're compressing the eating window. So your first meal, let's say, is at 8 a.m. Okay, you can eat in between that, you know, that period of time. So if you want the second meal at 12, and then your third meal at, let's say, three, you know, finish by four o'clock. And then you've got a 16-hour window where you're fasting between 4 p.m. and 8 a.m. the next morning. So that would be a compressed eating window. And, and it, we use this term intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding. Now, some people will say intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding would be anything within a 24-hour window. So if you're eating at all within a 24-hour window, 
It's called technically time-restricted feeding, where you're just basically restricting the amount of time that you're feeding. And intermittent fasting would be more of like a two-day fast or a 36-hour fast. Anything over a 24-hour period of time would be called intermittent fasting. But most people use those terms interchangeably. But just so the audience knows, if you hear somebody talking about time-restricted feeding, TRF, they're talking about this idea of compressing the eating window on a, in a sense, on a daily basis, you know, to let's say eight hours or six hours or four hours or whatever it is. And then oftentimes intermittent fasting is a term used when we're talking about something more than 24 hours. Like for example, a lot of people get great benefits doing a 36 hour fast, for example, where they'll eat dinner at, you know, let's say 6 p.m. on Saturday and they don't eat again until, you know, Monday morning. Okay, or Monday at lunchtime, somewhere around around that around there. Great, great, great thing to do if you're really looking to ramp up fat burning. You want to lose weight. You want to really bring down inflammation in the body. Can be really, really powerful. And that's an intermittent fasting strategy. Awesome. I've got so many questions for you, David, and I love it. We're going to get into it. Uh, but first of all, like if we're going to be fasting, why are we doing this? What are the exact benefits? What's the point? For sure. Well. Basically, when we stop eating, so of course, when we're eating for the next three to four hours, we're eating or our body is actually utilizing the calories we consumed to produce energy, right? And to produce new proteins and all the different things that the body needs to do with the nutrients we have available. So three to four hours, sometimes six hours, depending on the size of the meal, that's really going to be the nutrients we just took in. And then after that, we need a continual supply of blood glucose, right? Your blood glucose, if you ever test it, it's never going to be zero. <laughs> it's only zero if you're dead, right? And you've been dead for a while. And so you, you're always going to have a continuous supply of blood glucose. And the body does that by having uh, something called glycogen, which is a surplus of glucose that we store in our muscles and our liver. And so the body will start to liberate this glycogen naturally. And we use stress hormones to do that, cortisol epinephrine, but their job, like cortisol is called a glucocorticoid, meaning its job is actually to elevate blood glucose. So when glucose starts to drop, cortisol, some cortisol will come out to get the glucose up and that's normal and natural. And so now we're starting to utilize our stored sugar, but our body has a certain threshold. It doesn't want to go below. So it's only going to use stored sugar up until a certain point. And then it's going to actually get into our body fat stores. And the way that it knows to get into the body fat stores is when this hormone insulin gets down, right? So insulin has a certain threshold. After we eat, it's up, ele it's elevated above that threshold. As it comes down, the longer we go between meals, it gets below this threshold and that tells the body, okay, now let's burn fat as our main fuel source. So instead of burning so much sugar, let's burn fat. When we burn fat, we produce a cleaner source of energy because glucose is a quick energy source, but it's also metabolically uh, metabolically dirty in a sense. And, the, and, the, and I say that because we produce a lot of free radicals and we drive up more inflammatory pathways when we're using glucose as our primary energy source. So in a sense, on a 24-hour period, we don't want to use a lot of glucose as an energy source. We only really want to use it as our main energy source, perhaps shortly after meals. And then also if we're doing any sort of anaerobic type activity. So if we're exercising, you know, doing something stressful, lifting weights, something along those lines, it's a very good, good energy source because we can, we can produce a lot of energy quickly from it. And 
we uh, we can do it without oxygen. So it's great for those purposes. But for the most part, 23 hours a day or whatever, we really want to be in a, a state where we're burning mostly fat. And that's what happens when insulin comes down. When we're fasting, that's what takes place. And so now we reduce inflammation in the body. Also, when insulin drops down, we activate something within our cells called autophagy. And autophagy is a self-eating process where the cell itself, the innate intelligence of our body that runs our body tells the cell, okay, now's the time to clean up the environment. So it's kind of like cleaning up your house. So if you're always busy, you're not going to clean up you know, the dishes and the, and, and, and the sink. You're not going to clean up all the, the clothes. You're not going to fold and put away the laundry because you're so busy, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when we're not eating, you know, basically it's like, okay, I'm not busy. Let's, let's do some house cleaning. So we go in, we start to, to break down these damaged proteins. And remember how I was talking about when we burn sugar for fuel, we produce oxidative stress. And so oxidative stress over time rusts all the different proteins within the cell. And so we need to change those proteins out. Once they get oxidized to a certain level, they're dysfunctional. So autophagy says, okay, let's clean those up. Let's break down those damaged proteins and let's create new healthy proteins. And this is a very, you know, energy conserving way of rebuilding a cell, right? So there's two ways we can get rid of damaged cells. One is that we can, well, really three ways. One is a a, a cell self-destruction, we call that cellular apoptosis. And if you ever look at cancer research, you're, you'll hear about that because the cells, when they become dysfunctional, they should be able to have a cell suicide switch and kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's a great thing. They need to do that. However, it's actually very energy demanding and it creates more oxidative stress and inflammation. We can also, we'll also have uh, immune cells that will, in a sense, kill off the cancer cells as well. That's also very energy demanding, creates more oxidative stress. Whereas autophagy is very energy conserving and it doesn't, you know, doesn't produce the oxidative stress. And so it's our preferred way of, in a sense, refreshing the cell. Okay. So we have the right cellular mechanics that are running our body. And through, through the process of just life in general, we develop all these, what we call senescent or aged and dysfunctional cells. And they're characterized by aged and dysfunctional mitochondria, which are one of the main um, organelles within the cell. Mitochondria produce the energy within all the cells. And so when these mitochondria become aged and dysfunctional, they're not able to produce the energy that we need. And the cell itself uh, is is dysfunctional and is not able to really allow us to thrive. And so the more that we can get rid of these senescent mitochondria through this process of autophagy, and when it comes to, to mitochondria, the term we use is mitophagy, mm-hmm. the healthier, the more energy and the, the, that the cell is going to be able to produce and the more stress resilient the cell becomes. And really the quality of our life comes down to the stress resiliency and the energy production of all the cells of our body. And so the more high energy, stress resilient cells we have, the healthier we're gonna be, the healthier we're gonna feel, and the better we're gonna age. Wow, that is uh, amazing, that's fantastic. I mean, it almost sounds like you're pressing control, delete on your computer in a way, when it gets slow and it gets kind of you know clumsy, and it really helps us sort of clean and reset everything, right? That's exactly right. So going back to that house analogy, 
you know, when insulin's elevated, it's like, we're just so busy. We're on the treadmill chasing the carrot, right? We can't, we're just so busy doing our daily activities. We have no time to clean our house, do any house cleaning. But all of us know if we don't do that, right? The house becomes stinky, stenchy. There's mold everywhere, right? It becomes a really toxic environment. So we have to take time where we're actually intentional about cleaning the house, making sure that it's working properly. Yeah. And there's no better way to start cleaning the house than within the gut and in the gut lining. So let's talk specifically what's going on there on a cellular level when we do any periods of fasting. Now, just maybe we can come back to it. You mentioned 36 hours. That might seem daunting for somebody that's new to this. What earliest amount of fasting can start to benefit the gut lining? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And so a lot of people, when they think about fasting, they think about losing weight and burning fat. However, somebody like myself, I've never tried to lose weight. I've always, I'm always trying to put on muscle, yet I practice intermittent fasting. And again, like I talked about in the beginning, my introduction to intermittent fasting is what allowed me to heal irritable bowel syndrome and leaky gut. And so the power behind it is 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 really several fold. One is the first the first thing is when we are constantly eating, we're putting a lot of stress, mechanical stress on the gut lining and that damages and injures the gut lining itself. It's kind of like, you know, if you sprain your ankle, are you going to go and exercise on your ankle? Are you going to be jumping around on that ankle? Of course not. You want to rest it, give it time to rest so it can heal and repair. Well, the first thing when we're trying to heal our gut is actually giving it time where it can rest, heal, and repair. So less stress on the gut lining gives it time, gives the body time to heal and repair. Now, the good thing is, you know, when we think about the ankle, you know, like if you sprain your ankle, sometimes it can be a week or two weeks, right? Where you can't do a whole lot on it. And that's because cartilage cells are, they're, they're poorly vascularized and they take a long time to heal. The good thing is the gut lining heals very, very quickly. In fact, those cells are constantly replacing themselves. They say every three to five days, we have an entirely new gut lining. So they're very, very, they're cells that are going to constantly turn over. And we know that there's only one cell wall that's kind of connecting between, we have these little tight junctions that are connected all the way across in our small intestine, and it's just one cell lining. So it's really important that those cells are constantly reproducing and constantly regenerating. So super key. And if we take stress off the gut, it's going to give it the time it needs to heal and repair. So that's the first thing. Number two is we talked about how fasting itself reduces oxidative stress and inflammation. Well, we know that oxidative stress and inflammation are what actually wear down the gut lining. So the more we can reduce overall oxidative stress and inflammation in the system, the better everything heals, including the gut lining. So that's number two. And then number three is this is really unique is that, believe it or not, that actually fasting, I mean, we talked about how it stimulates autophagy and mitophagy. Well, obviously it stimulates mitophagy in the enterocytes, which are the intestinal cells. So when they become damaged, again, the, the mitochondria become senescent, right? And, and damaged and dysfunctional, and they have very poor stress resiliency. Well, fasting, and I'm going to come back to the mechanism for how this works, but I talked about it earlier, fasting stimulates mitophagy, where we break down these older damaged mitochondria and we regenerate new mitochondria in the, particularly in those enterocytes. So they become stronger and more stress resilient. And really, you know, some research on animals like rats, they've shown that within 24 hours, we get significant stem cell production 
within mm-hmm. our gut. So you do a 24 hour fast, any length of fast, like if you do a 16 hour fast, that's going to give time for the gut lining to heal. That's good. That's, that's better than, you know, eating in a sense, you know, 14 hours a day, certainly a lot better. And a lot of people have gotten really good gut healing results, just doing a 16 hour fast on a daily basis. However, the research shows a 24 hour fast. So you eat one, let's say lunch on Wednesday, and then you wait to eat until lunch on Thursday, that is going to stimulate intestinal stem cell production. So that's young embryonic cells. And that's one of the things the body will do. It will figure out what cells it wants to repair and what cells are beyond repair that it wants to get rid of. And it will bring in new, young, very stress resilient cells. And so we get that stem cell production. Oh, that's huge. That's amazing. You know, we're hearing a lot about in the research, David, about how you get an improved or an increased microbiome diversity and how that improves overall health. So tell me, how does fasting affect that? Does that improve our our biodiversity of our microbiome? Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is really interesting because, you know, all the microbiome researchers out there, and this is still an evolving science. We're learning more and more about the microbiome every single day, but all the top experts will say, One of the key characteristics of a healthy gut is a diverse array of species. What that means is a very large quantity of different types of species, in a sense, all under a a certain threshold. And so what happens is when we're eating kind of the same foods and obviously the popular foods we have in our society, a lot of processed foods, we're getting more monocultures, right? We're limiting the amount of overall species and we're getting certain types of species to overgrow and then that's causing a lot of unwanted health conditions and so we want diversity and microbiome researchers most of them for for years have said well in order to do that you need a really diverse diet meaning and particularly plant-based diverse diet because we know that all these different types of fibers certain bacteria certain microbes like certain types of prebiotics and fibers better than others. And so if we eat this really diverse diet, constantly getting new new foods and introducing new foods in, that that's going to create diversity in the gut microbiome. And there is some truth to that. However, what's interesting is it's almost like the opposite. It's like when we take food away, it actually increases the overall diversity of the gut microbiome. And how does this work? Well, we have all of these you know microbes in our gut but we can classify them as primary feeders and secondary feeders. And it has to do with the gut mucosa. So right above the intestinal lining, we have this layer of mucus. And that layer of mucus is actually where the immune system of the gut is, right? We call it the gastrointestinal lymphatic uh, system, basically, right? So the GALT or lymphoid tissue is what what it's called. That's why what gives it the LT at the end, gastro-associated lymphoid tissue. And in there, you've got something called secretory IgA, which is an immunoglobulin that helps to bind uh, to different pathogens and keep pathogens under control. So if you're concerned about bacterial overgrowth, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, candida, things like that, the mucosal membrane should really help keep all of that under control along with the digestive juices like stomach acid and bile and pancreatic enzymes. They should all help keep everything under control so we have the right amount of bacteria in the small intestine. Of course, lots of things can go wrong there. And so when we think about where these primary feeders and secondary feeders are, the primary feeders are above, kind of sitting right at the top of the mucosa. Secondary feeders are deep within the mucosa. So when we eat food, the primary feeders are right there, right? So they're ready to to enjoy, okay? And they start breaking down the food and they enjoy it. Okay, and they leave very little for the secondary feeders. 
Mm-hmm. And so the more that we're eating, the more overgrowth, because now these primary feeders are getting plenty of food. So they're reproducing and replicating uh, very fast. And so we get more and more and more primary feeders crowding through that intestinal mucosa and very little nutrients are seeping into the secondary feeders that are kind of deeper down and they're not getting um, the exposure that they need and they're being crowded out by the primary feeders. And so the unique thing about the secondary feeders is they actually can eat mucosa. In fact, there's one key uh, bacteria that researchers have called one of the keystone or one of the most important microbial species in our gut. It's called Acromansia mucinophilia. Mucinophilia means mucus loving. So it actually sits deep in the mucosa and will eat the mucosa, right? So it also likes polyphenols, loves polyphenols. Um, Polyphenols are these unique plant uh, compounds that we get from herbal tea, green tea, from um, different herbs and spices and plant-based foods. And it loves those and will break those down and, and create really powerful compounds, but also can feed off of the mucosa. And so when it's crowded out though, then we get low quantities of acromansia. So if we're constantly eating, we're feeding, overfeeding the primary feeders, secondary feeders aren't getting the nutrients they need and they're not getting the space that they need. So they start to reduce. And when that happens, now microbiome researchers have have linked that to all causes of chronic inflammatory conditions, metabolic disease, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, right? All, all these different conditions associated with low levels of acromanzium mucinophilia. When we start going longer periods of time without food, many of the primary feeders die off and they slow down their reproduction and that allows space, right? And nutrient attachment sites for the acromanzia, right? And the other secondary feeders to proliferate. And the best analogy I use for this is in my yard, my front, my front yard here, we have an apple tree and we have a blueberry push. What happens is the apple tree, it grows quickly and we actually have to trim the hedges every single year, right? To pay somebody to come out here and trim the hedges. Otherwise, the, the blueberry bush doesn't get the sunshine it needs and it won't grow any blueberries. And so we actually have to harm the apple tree and, and in a sense, reduce the amount of apples we get from our apple tree so we can get blueberries. Well, it's kind of the same thing we've got to do in our gut. By doing intermittent fasting, we are de-weeding, right? In a sense, we're like trimming the hedges, right? Or taking out the weeds and allowing, so we get kind of more of this diversity. Um, and now we're allowing, you know, the acromantia, the secondary feeders to proliferate and function well. And the unique thing about those secondary feeders is when they feed, they produce something called urolithin A. And urolithin A is this compound that stimulates, not only does it stimulate healthy mucus production, right? So the, the acromansia helps trigger the goblet cells that, that stimulate um, that mucosal membrane to, to form and to become strong and hardy. And we need that when the primary feeders overgrow, they reduce and thin out that mucous membrane. So they reduce the overall resiliency of the intestinal uh, immune system. But then also the acromansia, this, this urolithin A compounds gets into the enterocytes and stimulates mitophagy. So again, this activation of uh, breaking down the old damaged mitochondria and, and creating new healthy stress resilient mitochondria in the intestinal lining. So when we allow for these secondary feeders to proliferate and to function well, it allows the entire ecosystem of the gut 
to function better. And intermittent fasting is one of the best strategies in order to do that. That that is so interesting. I'm so glad you touched on that. And I'm really glad you touched on the acromancia mucinophila because you know one of the things we do a lot of microbiome analysis in our clinic, and we see that so often very, very low on the scores. And that is such a you know a cornerstone, as you say, to optimal health and well-being in our in our gut. So we've got to make sure that we are feeding and giving our secondary levels of of uh, microbiota that chance. You know, let the let the big dogs take a step back and let the secondary dogs come in for a feed. But uh, that blueberry bush analogy is amazing. I love that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, that you know, any gardener knows you can't just let things grow, right? Because you're going to get all of these opportunistic plants growing. And you actually, if you want to actually have a really healthy garden, you've got to take out the weeds or you've got to trim the hedges with, you know, certain things. And that's really the way we have to look at our gut as well is it's trimming hedges, it's trimming things down. And the great thing about intermittent fasting in a sense is it's almost like mowing your lawn, right? Mm. Um, You're bringing down the overall microbial load in your system as a whole when you're not eating. And that's allowing for, you know, the, the proper diversity to take place. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you about this amazing product called Joint Support by Pure Health Research. If you're out there and you're struggling with stiff or aching joints and you're tired of letting that discomfort steal the joy and freedom from your life, you've got to try Joint Support. It contains seven of Mother Nature's best superfoods for supporting comfortable, healthy, and flexible joints. And it even promotes healthy cartilage growth too. Now, all it takes is one small capsule of joint support every day to start feeling the positive effects on your joint health. And as a listener of our show, you can try joint support risk-free today and get a free 30-day supply of omega-3 when you take advantage of this special offer. It can promote healthy joint lubrication, making it easier to move in comfort. You're also gonna get two free eBooks so you can learn more about joint health. Just head over to getjointhelp.com forward slash jockers. That's getjointhelp.com forward slash jockers. G-E-T-J-O-I-N-T-H-E-L-P.com forward slash J-O-C-K-E-R-S. And that will order joint support and claim your free bottle of omega-3 while supplies last. Again, that's getjointhelp.com dot com forward slash jockers. So let's say we've got somebody who's never done this before. They're ready. They're pumped. They're hearing this talk right now. I mean, I'm pumped. I've done this before, but I'm pumped to do it again. You know, where do they begin and how do they prep themselves for this? What can they expect for their first fast? Is it, is it a piece of cake? Are they going to have side effects? You know, walk us through it, David. What, what should they be looking out for? For sure. Well, the first thing I would do is a 12-hour overnight fast. So you start with just finishing dinner. Let's say you finish your last meal at seven o'clock or eight o'clock or whatever it is. You don't eat anything with calories until 12 hours later. So seven or 8 a.m. the next morning. And then what you do is when you wake up in the morning, now at night, before you go to bed, if you want something, you can have some herbal tea or you know drink some water or something along those lines. That's fine. Hydration is not an issue. It's really just caloric-based foods. And so when you wake up in the morning, you hydrate your body. So all of us are dehydrated when we first wake up because we're breathing out water vapor. And so we're all dehydrated. So when we drink water, not only do we rehydrate our system, but we also distend our stomach. And when our stomach is not distended, when it's empty, we release a hormone called ghrelin. Ghrelin is our hunger hormone. So it goes up to the hypothalamus and says, hey, I'm hungry. And so when we drink water, 
we distend our stomach, we inhibit ghrelin production, we no longer get that message that we're hungry. So most people, what they notice is if they're drinking, let's say 16 ounces of water, okay? I always tell people drink 16 to 24 ounces of water before you even think about food, okay? Mm. For most people, it's a good amount of water, okay? And, and they're not used to doing that. And so it oftentimes will take them an hour, two hours to do that. And while they're doing that, they're suppressing their hunger, okay? So they're already feeling like, well, I'm not even hungry. So that actually makes it really easy to be able to do that 12-hour fast. And you can add some salt, right? Salt provides electrolytes, which can be helpful, like a little bit of sea salt, put it on your tongue or in the water can be helpful as well. If you want to do herbal tea as part of that, you know, part of the water you're drinking, great. It's fantastic. I think it's a really good strategy, actually stimulates your vagus nerve, um, which allows you to actually move your bowels better in, the, in early in the day, which is one of the key strategies to having a better fasting experience. If you're constipated, you're going to be circulating endotoxins, which can drive up cortisol and stimulate a stress response, drives up cortisol, which can cause more hunger and cravings. And so um, you definitely want to be able to move your bowels and warm lemon tea or warm herbal tea. The warmness of it actually stimulates your vagus nerve, stimulates peristalsis and helps you move your bowels. So I think that's a great strategy, but really just getting the hydration in is super key early in the day. Um, and that's one of the big things you want to do. And then when you're doing that, when you're hydrating well, you actually teach your body to uh, hydrate properly. Most people are chronically dehydrated, but the message they get is more of like, I'm hungry. I want, I want some sort of food. And the reason for that is because our hunger center and our thirst center in our part of our brain called our hypothalamus are right next to each other. And because food is so prevalent and easy to get, and when we eat food, we get a dopamine release. That means we get this, we get flooded, our, our brain gets flooded with this neurotransmitter. It just makes us feel really good. All right. And so we've, we end up creating an addiction, a dopamine addiction to the, the idea of eating food, which I think is actually a good thing. Like we, sh it's, it's great that God wired us to have this dopamine release when we eat. It should be a great feel good experience, a celebration in a sense. However, we don't want to be addicted to it, right? We don't want to constantly need that hit. And so um, when we are constantly eating, again, that hunger center and thirst center are right next to each other, we actually get some neuroplastic changes in our brain where when we're really thirsty, our body says, hey, I want the dopamine release that I get from eating. Mm. And so it's, it's telling you a signal for food when you're really thirsty, okay? Mm. And so... This is why it's super important to hydrate well. And then your natural thirst mechanisms, when you start practicing intermittent fasting, when you hydrate well, your natural thirst mechanisms will kick in. And you'll actually realize when you are really hungry and when you are actually really just thirsty. And so you'll, so your body will become resensitized and hydrating will become easier and you'll notice less hunger, less cravings. Now, I would recommend in the beginning, you know, again, 12 hours. Okay, over overnight fast, something like that. You may be up to 14 hours. And then in your meals, do only three meals a day, no snacking. But in your meals, make sure you prioritize healthy protein and healthy fats. Okay, so good protein. I recommend getting at least 30 grams of protein in, in each meal. Okay, so if you're doing three meals, 30 grams of protein is 90 grams, right? You may even need more if you're very active, you're exercising, you're, you're lifting weights, things like that. Okay, start with the protein and also add in some healthy fats. Depending on how well your body digests fats, you're probably gonna want somewhere between 20 to maybe 40 grams of healthy fats coming from things like extra virgin olive oil, avocados, grass-fed butter, 
grass-fed animal products, um, coconut oil. Those would be pasture-raised eggs. Those would be the best fats to get. They're going to be coming from those sources. And so 20 to 40 grams of fat, if you don't have a gallbladder, maybe 15 to 20 grams of fat in a meal, uh, depending on how, how well you digest it. But make sure you get that protein level. Again, 30 to 40 grams, maybe even more, again, if you're very active. That will give you natural satiation and reduce hunger and cravings. When you get your protein right, you get some fats in there, you reduce the processed foods, the simple starch, simple sugars, um, highly refined starches. When you get rid of that and you prioritize the protein and fats like I'm talking about, that will reduce cravings and allow you to go longer between meals. And in the beginning, you start with three meals. And what you may notice is, you know, depending on your activity level, you may feel better doing just two meals a day. In fact, a lot of people do that. They just do two meals a day and they're able to compress their eating window. Uh, it's a lot easier for them to compress their eating window because they're only eating once, you know, it, let's say around midday and then once in the evening for dinner or maybe once in the morning and once uh, in the evening or, or, you know, however you want to kind of structure it. But when you eat two meals as opposed to four meals, you actually reduce the overall amount of insulin you produce by 25 to 50%. And so insulin, again, is this hormone that it can drive up inflammation when it's elevated. It also doesn't allow us to burn fat when it's elevated, and it doesn't allow us to do the house repair, right? We talked about that with the autophagy. Mm -hmm. So the less insulin we have to produce, the more insulin sensitive we're going to be, the better we're going to get nutrients into cells, the better we're going to burn fat for fuel, and the better house cleaning we're going to do, the better autophagy. So... If you're able to, to bring it down to two meals, that's great. Um, and then you can compress that eating window to let's say eight hours like we talked about. So first step again, to, to, to summarize that, 12 hours overnight, maybe up to 14 hours doing the hydration, really prioritizing that, getting your macronutrients right, making sure you prioritize protein and healthy fats, reducing the amount of uh, processed foods overall, um, you know, you want to eat carbohydrates, best sources are going to be fruits and root vegetables, taking out grains and sugars, things like that. Get your carbs from fruit. That's my favorite source or possibly root vegetables if you do okay with those. Um, and then make sure that you're prioritizing the protein and the healthy fats and then just see how you feel. And then you may be able to compress your eating window more and, uh, you know, you can, you're able to play around with it even further. Are there any groups of people or conditions that people have that should never do intermittent fasting? Yeah. So particularly when we talk about intermittent fasting, it would be like compressing it down to eight hour eating window. So pregnant women, they're going to need to eat, you know, throughout, throughout, you know, their, the, the, their pregnancy. However, some pregnant women don't have an issue eating in a 12 hour window, as long as they're getting sufficient calories. Some pregnant women have no issue fasting 12 hours overnight. So it just depends on the woman. Obviously you want to make sure you're getting sufficient calories. You're not feeling hungry. Instead you're feeling satiated uh, and good. Okay. High level athletes, kind of the same thing. If you're, you know, an NBA basketball player, NFL football player in season, I think all of these guys would benefit doing it out of season in yeah. season, right? Maybe not as much because you're, you know, you're doing intense training, um, burning tons of calories. So probably not as much, um, young children, obviously babies, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're drinking milk all, you know, all throughout the day. Um, young children, I mean, even my kids, they're doing like a 12 to 14 hour fast overnight. We usually finish dinner by 6 30, 7 o'clock. And then like today, uh, 
today they do like on Fridays, my wife calls it Friday fun day because they're, they're all homeschooled. So they're usually eating breakfast at like eight thirty nine o'clock in the morning. And on Friday fun day, she makes like a special breakfast and they eat it at like, I don't know, nine 30 or 10 o'clock. Right. So they're, they're fasted for 15 hours, you know, a lot of times on those days. And, um, you know, they, they don't complain, right? They're, they're able to do it because their body's really metabolically flexible. They're good at burning fat for fuel. They're getting sufficient calories in the eating window that they that they have. So I think that's really key. So those would be the, the main demographics. And I will say the demographic that tends to struggle the most is going to be your young, menstruating, very lean, very busy, and also uh, stressed females. Okay. So let's say a, a 32 year old woman with three kids, right? All under the age of five, right? Um, she's also got a career and she you know, does CrossFit three days a week. All right, so that woman, she might have a little bit more challenges with intermittent fasting. So one of the things we'll do is something called crescendo fasting where I would tell her, okay, let's just do 12 hours overnight, all right? Finish your dinner at seven, eight o'clock at night. Don't eat until seven or eight o'clock in the morning. Hydrate your body when you wake up, you know, then eat, prioritize the protein, like all the things that we just talked about. And then from there, okay, on a day when you're not working out, let's try doing a 14 or 16 hour fast. All right. So on a day when she's not adding another level of stressor, stressor on her system, let's just try doing that. And we'll do it two days a week, non-consecutive days, because fasting is a stressor on the body, just like exercise is a stressor on the body. So it depends how stress resilient your body is. The more stress res resilient you are, the more you're able to stack some of these stressors. The less stress resilient you are, the less you can stack those stressors. You got to think about it fasting, kind of like exercise. Mm -hmm. If you're sedentary, all right, you're not exercising, you're 100 pounds overweight, you're in really bad shape. Are you going to go out and run a 5K? No, like that, you would feel awful. You would feel extremely, you know, you'd feel sore. You would possibly throw up on your way at, you know, doing it. You would feel really bad. You could do it, but you'd have a really bad experience. It's kind of the same with fasting. So if you're really metabolically inflexible and bad at burning fat for fuel, then we're not going to overstress your system like that. We're going to gradually build you up, okay, and build your metabolic flexibility, your ability to burn sugar as well as fat for fuel. Uh, effectively. And so kind of gradually kind of shifting into it can be helpful. And also for women, we may we may do it a little bit more at different times in their menstrual cycle. For example, day one of, men, of the menstrual cycle is the first day of menstruation. So when they first start bleeding, okay, the first really 10 days of the menstrual cycle are actually a great day to do a lower carb diet and do intermittent fasting. As they start to move into ovulation, which is roughly day 14, although it can be a little bit different for each woman, but let's say between day 12 and 16, somewhere in that range, we want to make sure actually we're, we're consuming more calories, right? And, and more carbohydrates. And so that's a, that period of time, we really need to tell the body, hey, we're in a time of feasting because we want to make sure we're, when, when we're in a time of feasting, the body says, oh, okay, we can, this is a great time to be fertile. So we'll produce the right amount of fertility hormones so we can have a really good successful ovulation period. And so that actually works really good because the first 10 days, it's really important that we, that's a great time to reduce inflammation and fasting, intermittent fasting can be a great strategy for that and also to improve insulin sensitivity. So when we do do the feasting cycle, um, you know, uh, during that, that, that next window around ovulation, 
we've got lots of nutrients coming in and the body senses, okay, this is a great time to produce the fertility hormones. And then right after ovulation, that's another great time to go or lower carb, go uh, do some intermittent fasting up until roughly around day 21, day 22, when you go into the week before your menstrual cycle. During that week, that most women say, that's when I have the most cravings. Mm-hmm. Um, and why is that? Because again, they need to tell the body we're in a time of feasting and they need to they need to really elevate their progesterone. And progesterone, the backbone of progesterone is, is something called pregnenolone. And pregnenolone is also used to produce cortisol. And when we're fasting, we're gonna elevate our cortisol. So we're gonna have to produce this cortisol to get the blood sugar to get sugar as, you know, basically to break down the glycogen, like we talked about earlier in this, this conversation. So uh, the more cortisol we're producing, the less progesterone we're going to produce. And so it's important during that period of time that we're making sure that we're consuming a lot of calories. We're consuming more carbohydrates during that window. So we have lower cortisol and we're able to produce the progesterone that we need. It's basically these feast famine cycling. Mm -hmm. And uh, if women follow that sort of strategy, they tend to do a lot better. And then they have to, again, look at how much stressors they're stacking. If you're not sleeping well, if you're you know sleeping terribly, or if you've got a newborn baby, not a good time, right? To add another stressor like fasting into, into the mix. Yeah. Yeah. You just made me think though, like what about type one diabetics? Is it safe for them? And that's a great question. So with type one diabetics, I've had many type one diabetics that have no issue. In fact, they feel better and they take less insulin because they're more insulin sensitive. And so by doing intermittent fasting. Now, it's a good thing to obviously discuss with your doctor. There's also videos on YouTube with different experts that are, that are kind of going through how to do it properly. And it's, you know, it's not something you immediately go into. You just have to be really cautious as far as obviously. And I think most type one diabetics, you know, when type one diabetics get in trouble, it's because they're not cautious, right? They're not testing their blood sugar. They're not really considering what they're eating. So a uh, type one diabetic that would be listening to this conversation is somebody that's already cautious. They're already testing their blood sugar. They kind of know how they respond to different foods. And if that's you, then absolutely you can do this and just kind of measure how you're responding, right? Where you're at, where your blood sugar's at. So you kind of know the right window to consume food and the right foods to consume. And I think if you do that, you'll be able to do great. Oh, that's great advice. Thanks, David. Now, listen, right before we we wrap up today, given that this is a gut summit and you've seen thousands of patients with gut issues, what are some of the most common conditions you've seen resolved with intermittent fasting that are gut related? Is it, you know, Crohn's, colitis, IBS, GERD? What would it be that you see most commonly? Yeah, I mean, every kind of gut condition. Now, obviously, intermittent fasting isn't the only thing that we should use. You know, we want, we want to have, it's a, it's a powerful tool in an overall tool belt of strategies that we can use to help heal. And so I think it should be a foundational tool in every kind of gut condition, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, um, irritable bowel, gas bloating, you know, acid reflux, um, you know, different types of infections, H. pylori, candida overgrowth. I mean, every one of these things, intermittent fasting should be one of the foundational lifestyle strategies. It doesn't cost anything. I always say it's the most ancient, inexpensive, and powerful healing strategy known to mankind because all of our ancestors have done it. They didn't have refrigerators and pantries. They relied on having a good harvest or killing an animal, right? Mm. Uh, or catching a fish. And that wasn't always successful, right? Unfortunately, nature didn't always provide for them. And therefore, they had many times where they had famine. So it was built into our blueprint, our genetic blueprint, that we had to be really good at producing energy when food wasn't around. 
And that's really where fasting ha- is so successful for us. And so our all of our ancestors, ancestors did it. It's built into our genetic blueprint. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it doesn't cost you anything. In fact, saves you money. And it has incredible, the research has shown incredible uh, healing benefits from doing it. So it's something that I believe should be kind of foundational for anybody's healing journey. Um, obviously, the way that it's done, the art of doing it uh, may differ from individual to individual. So one person might say, well, yeah, I'm doing one meal a day, right? There's a popular diet out there, one meal a day, OMAD. I only eat one meal a day in a one hour period of time and I feel great. Well, that may work for that person, but it may not work for you, right? And so the art of actually how to practice it is gonna differ, but all of us should be doing some level of intermittent fasting on a regular basis. Well, Dr. Jockers, this has been not only uh, inspiring, I think, to many people where, you know, a topic that could be very intimidating, uh, but it's also been very encouraging and educational. So thank you so much for uh, for your wisdom today. And as always, uh, where can we learn more about you online? Where can people find you? Yeah, for sure. Well, the best way is drjockers.com, D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S.com. And of course, I'm on social media. Uh, Instagram, just look me up and YouTube, as well as my podcast, Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast. I also have a best-selling book called The Fasting Transformation as well that you can find on Amazon. The Fasting Transformation goes through all the science and research on intermittent, extended, and partial fasting strategies. Amazing. Well, thanks again, uh, David, and you take care and all the best to your family. Thanks, Sean. All the best to you as well. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I wanna thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on, or you wanna dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.